0: Rodier Griffiths here, the Executive Director of The Hub. Welcome to the Friday Roundtable. Each week on this program, we dig into the big issues and ideas shaping the public conversation with Sean Spear, our Editor-at-Large, and Stuart Thompson, our Editor-in-Chief. The goal of these weekly programs is to leave you with some new analysis And insights into the week that was. The Hubs podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening. Stuart Sean, welcome to the roundtable. Hey guys, great to catch up, guys. What a week. Uh, Wow. Um, The whole saga of Chinese election interference kind of dominated uh, news coverage this week with the release of former Governor General David Johnston's uh, report, the rapporteur's report, and then the reaction from the press, from the opposition parties. Uh, So we're going to dedicate this entire episode of the roundtable to unpacking it all for our listeners. And as we like to do on each and every edition of the roundtable, we want to kind of go beyond maybe a bit of the conventional analysis that you've gotten the last five days and try to think about some of the bigger questions that this report, um, the reaction to it, what this all says about this moment that we're in, about Chinese election interference, and maybe more importantly about our kind of political and bureaucratic culture in Ottawa, which is just such a a key beat for the Hub. So let me come to you first, Sean, because you've been our, proverbial water carrier this week at the Hub in terms of analysis and insights, some great pieces that have blown up on our website, so congratulations, that almost always must feel good as a writer, but let's just go bigger picture with you, Sean. If you pull back from some of the specific, and we can talk about these specific criticisms of the report and David Johnston's approach, what do you think we've learned, What's the kind of new insight that you take away about the culture of Ottawa, about the seeming um, interconnections, to put it politely, between the political class, the governing class? I've got some thoughts on this. I know I want to come to Stuart for his view on how the media has reacted to all this. because It's fascinating. But let's hear from you first. Yeah, there's so many different... Uh, lines of analysis that we could
1: pursue. Um, but I think my immediate reaction to your to your question and observations um is that there is at, according to Johnson's report, something fundamentally broken in the way that information is distributed and used in the government of Canada. We are led to believe that our intelligence agencies, uh, which spend billions of dollars a year, collecting intelligence analyzing intelligence and then ostensibly using that intelligence to inform government policy and government operations seems to be doing it um to no end um you know that is to say uh they collect information that that uh, ostensibly shows that uh China is uh, intentionally interfering in our elections in fact even targeting members of parliament and their family and just nobody in the entire system the entire government of Canada uh, is aware of it besides the people working on the file um you know y- y- if that's the government's best explanation <laughs> um of this of this scandal that that this wasn't a case of political negligence it's just that um that all of this work is being carried out and nobody's reading it nobody's using it it's not being it's not being uh used to inform government policy making I mean what an indictment of uh, of the state of our federal government, um, and as David Frum observed in in, in our conversation yesterday, um, which will be up later on our website, you know, it also reflects priorities on the part of the government, doesn't it, Rudyard and Stewart? Um, you know that national security ought to be at the near the top of of any government of Canada's priority list, and the fact that it it seemingly isn't, uh, and wasn't for this government. Um, is in itself telling.
0: Let's come to you, uh, Stuart, because I think something fascinating has happened with the media here. Normally, um, the the kind of power nexus in Ottawa of the bureaucracy and especially the kind of the political class, i.e. who's ever in government and controlling the machinery of government, benefits from a media that, to some extent, I think in Canada compared to other peer jurisdictions, let's face it, at times is a little bit cozy, a little bit comfortable carrying government messages. And what struck me this week, Stuart, was just the almost visceral reaction on the part of the media across the spectrum to this report and the criticism that the media carried uh, well beyond any anything that the opposition did or so-called you know, experts with contrary points of view, this struck me as a moment where the media, in a somewhat semi-explicit way, kind of walked away from this government on the basis of its perceived credibility and the perceived credibility and validity of this report. It's kind of shocking to me.
2: Yeah, I one thing, so full disclosure, I was away all week in the Scottish Highlands, so I was kind of away from that, and then I read the report on the plane home almost free of any information because I didn't have internet out there, and so then I read the media reaction this morning after having taken it all in myself. It's a good way to do it, actually, um, and the thing that was most striking to me in the report, there's lots of interesting things, but the weirdness of this media cr- criticism section where... David Johnston goes through each big story that came from Global or the Global Mail, and he says, with no information, because I was hoping there would be some information and more context on the intelligence, but he just says, I looked into this one, nothing there, don't worry about it. The next one, I looked into that one, this is no big deal. And really the only one where he kind of admits that there is something pretty serious going on was the incident with Michael Chong. And I was really surprised, first of all, that that would happen, And then I was kind of imagining the media reaction to this in a lockup, which is that um, the idea of a special rapporteur, an eminent Canadian doing a whole report of media criticism, I just can't imagine that went over well in the lockup where lots of little conversations happen between reporters. So if you see this kind of moving in um, a similar direction, it's because in these lockups, reporters do talk. And I bet they were a little bit aggrieved by the tone of that report.
1: Let let me jump in, Rudyard, and then I'll, I'll turn it over to you. It's it's worth emphasizing this point, right? That um, that Mr. Johnston has a sort of self-image as dispassionate and judicious, and I think him and the government like to believe that that the report reflects um, that personal comportment, and it it does uh, when it's dealing with the allegations of Chinese election interference, it doesn't <laughs> when he's talking about the media and the opposition parties and the leakers. In that case, uh, Mr. Johnston's uh, uh, it succumbs to the temptation to, to, to express personal opinion uh, and hyperbole and all the rest. Um, it, it's really striking um, that uh, that it is nothing to do with the issue at hand, but these kind of editorial comments uh, where he he drops his uh, typical approach to these types of things, and instead it almost seems like he is effectively defending the government against its critics, including the media, the opposition, uh, and and these leakers. And I think that, along with uh, some of the other issues that you raised in your introduction, Rudyard, is the reason that we're seeing. You know, across the spectrum from the Toronto Star editorial page to Rebel News, <laughs> and virtually everyone in between, um, it, uh, largely dismissing uh, the report as um, as as being in- independent. And I think that is going to dog uh, the government um, uh, as it tries to move on on this file.
0: Yeah, well, just to build on this, I I think all of that oddity in the report that struck everyone who read it is a big tell and the tell is this guys you know these reports you have to understand they are the result of more than one pen and i think one could surmise here that our former governor general's pen maybe was there more to mark up and edit as opposed to write um i know i'm the cynic on this podcast so i'll play that Roll again I don't think he really wrote this report I think this report was written by a series of lawyers some of whom we know um, turned out to be major donors to the Liberal Party of Canada over the last decade or so I think what we have to do is drop this this um, you know kind of simulation that the government is running that this is somehow all objective and arm's length they call it a special rapporteur, but it is an appointment. It is an, uh, an order in council that appointed David Johnston as a special advisor to the prime minister, okay? Not to parliament, not to, I don't know, uh, you know, some entity or group inside the government. He is a special advisor to the prime minister. And then in a matter of weeks with no subject expertise... He's staffed up with a series of lawyers, some of whom, again, Democracy Watch, Duff Conacher's done some good work on this, have been major donors to the Liberal Party and have contributed no money (laughs) to any other party. And then we're given this report, Canadians, the media, all of us, and told Stuart somehow that this is an an august exercise in objectivity, perspicacity. Um, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, here it is, the truth, with a capital T. It just, Stuart, it's just not believable. The process behind this is not believable. And I think that's where my frustration as we kind of end this week is thats that is that it is this thing is what it is. It is a sausage-making exercise, and the sausage that came out the other end was a pretty dismal looking thing and the only thing i take satisfaction is is that it, this time finally it doesn't seem to be passing the smell test with everyone we know that it's rancid uh and we know that it is the fruit of you know of some committee seemingly of partisans uh based on someone who received a political appointment in other words the the much vault vaunted you know communications masterful you know ability of this government traditionally again and again over years and years i think stewart has finally broken down i think this has been a uh you know too clever by half and and they've kind of met they've run into something here they've run into being called out in a way that must be very painful for the former governor general
2: yeah, that's right. I remember the podcast we did after this appointment was about how they had adjacent cottages oh. in the Laurentians. And I the tone of that podcast was that, um, you know, this is very liberal, very capital L liberal. And I th- I think that's the fundamental issue here is that no matter what was written in that report, the reaction probably would have been the same because it just wasn't trustworthy. Um Nothing, nothing against uh, David Johnston, but those associations do matter. And you should read Howard England this morning at the hub on this, Uh, it is actually kind of hard to find someone who doesn't have those connections. But I think the overall point is that the liberal government just doesn't care, it doesn't really matter to them. And it doesn't matter to them, because it hasn't really gotten them in the past seven and a half years. So I think You know, I was taking notes on the report and I was getting really deep into it on the plane and hoping to have smart things to say. And then I read Sean's piece from yesterday about how this is about your disposition towards China. All of this stuff, it actually doesn't really matter in the real granular detail, but this is about our ruling class and how they view China and their unwillingness to change that view. So I threw out all those notes. (laughs) I think actually that may be the fundamental thing here, which is that this government doesn't take china seriously and we're seeing that in every response uh to the controversy
0: yeah perfect segue because i want to come to sean now and his piece that we kind of provisionally entitled the china consensus because i think sean to me you brought i think one of the important original insights of the last week not to puff you up too much but i think it, it was true that the the problem with david johnston wasn't just that there was the appearance of conflict. And he had his friend Frank Iacobucci <laughs> as Howard England, you know, writes beautifully. Today, you know, just conveniently absolves some of that um, kind of mysteriously over, over gin and tonics at the Rito Club. I don't know. There must be some kind of complementary, c- complex sacramental rites that happen that us lay lay persons aren't kind of privy to. Um, but I digress. The important point here, Sean, is that it's not so much the familial collection, connections, the Trudeau Foundation, it's that David Johnston himself, uh, and, and I say this with no malice or criticism, but it, demonstrably he his career looks like that of a Sinophile. I mean, this is a man who helped introduce the Confucius Institutes to Canada. He pioneered uh, what I now consider a kind of dangerous dependency of the Canadian university system on uh, hundreds of millions, possibly billions of dollars of subsidies from the Chinese government to send Chinese students to study in Canada. I mean, he sent three of his children to attend university in China. These are all, um, you know, heuristic uh, parts of his, clearly of his worldview that is deeply preferential to a charitable understanding and notion of China its role in the world Canada's relationship with China so Sean you know is this what we're finally coming to reckon with is the extent to which this is a lot more about Chinese election interference what's happening this week is people are waking up to the fact of China's deep penetration of our elites across academia across uh, business and finance through whole swaths of the government, China has been running a much bigger influence operation than just trying to fix a few nominations and intimidate members of parliament.
1: Yeah, well said, Rudyard. Um well said. Uh, and I, what I would say in response is that we've seen a lot of polling in the past few years that Canadians have opened their eyes um, to China as an increasingly hostile actor, a geopolitical threat um uh and a, a country with whom a, a normal economic and and foreign policy relationship is, is is probably not possible um you know that's and that's not simply in response to these latest allegations of chinese state interference in our democracy i think canadians had come to this view some time ago uh, as a result of um, the unlawful detention of the two Michaels, um, the lack of transparency uh, with respect to COVID-19 and the consequences that that had uh, for our economy and our population, um, you know, the uh, acts of uh, e- e- of espionage and uh, efforts to block Canadian exports um, for political reasons. It's a long way of saying, uh, Rudyard and Stuart... <laughs> It's pretty obvious uh, in in the past several weeks that our political class is, is far behind the Canadian population when it comes to seeing China as it is, as opposed to what people like the Prime Minister and David Johnston and the Canadian China Business Council and on and on and on wishes it was. Um, and I think that one of one of the things, that, Rudyard, that you and I talked a lot about this week, and I I, I sought to reflect in the the article that you were so kind to mention, is that you don't have to believe um, that uh, what we've seen in recent days is some consequence of corruption or malfeasance or negligence. I think in a lot of ways, it's about ego, um, that um, people like David Johnson have so invested themselves in a conception of the world in which um, China is a growing uh, superpower Uh, who is taking on the kind of characteristics of Western liberal democracy through this process of economic cooperation and institutionalization in in organizations like the World Trade Organization and so on. Um, And that's self-evidently wrong, Um, that the entire worldview of these people was predicated on what turned out to be a mistake is just something that they can't bring themselves to recognize and acknowledge and I think that's reflected in David Johnston's report where as you say uh Stuart he um dismisses uh a lot of these allegations he um but without any evidence he um he seems almost tortured to to say the word China um, and instead, tries to place this in a broader context of foreign ter- foreign interference, as opposed to the issue at hand. He doesn't mention the name of the the of the official in the Toronto consulate who was at the heart of many of these activities and operations. I could go on and on and on. I I but I guess for me, a, a major takeaway here is that uh that we're we're now seeing. Clearly, this growing gulf between um, the Canadian population and the Canadian establishment uh, when it comes to China. And, and the result is the rest of us are sort of stuck, uh, um, uh, glued to a, a failed China consensus um, that people like uh, the prime minister and David Johnson and others um, seem um, stubbornly attached to.
0: I just say, follow the money. This is big business. There's a lot of large Canadian corporations, powerful corporate interests that have deep relationships in China and have built business models here in Canada that are predicated on access, access to banking licenses, insurance licenses, broker licenses that allow them to sell uh, investment products to the Chinese. And in turn, many of our major banks investing on behalf of Chinese sovereign wealth and other Funds. So I would just say there's a lot of powerful lobbies out there that would love to, despite, you know, the horrific circumstances that the two Michaels were subjected to, despite all of this election interference, despite Michael Chong, despite the intimidation of Chinese students uh, studying here, uh, Chinese diaspora, all of that for this group, I'm sorry, is just the cost of doing business. It's the cost of, you know their dividends, it's the cost of their profit margins, their share options. It's a cozy bargain that they're willing uh, to make. Um, It's sad, but true. Let's take a quick break and back on the other side, let's talk a bit more about our former Governor General, David Johnston. What happens next here? um, How, if anything, uh, has this affected, influenced the institution of Governor General going forward? I mean, is this still the impartial institution that we thought it was should ggs be stepping off the sideline after being GD- gg to be appointed by a prime minister as a special advisor to take on a highly politically charged task and role i don't know maybe that's what these people are for maybe maybe this is what we should be doing but let's have that debate when we come back from this short break you're one click away from getting access to all the hub's best analysis and insights Visit our website, www.thehub.ca, now and sign up for our weekly email news digest. Every Saturday morning, we'll send to your inbox the cutting edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors on the week that was. Dive into the big issues and ideas moving the public conversation, courtesy of The Hub. Again, you can grab that exclusive email newsletter right now, free of charge, at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. Welcome back to The Hub Roundtable. Rudyard Griffiths here, the Executive Director of The Hub. I'm joined by Stuart Thompson, our Editor-in-Chief, Sean Spear. Our editor at large, Stuart. Let, let me come to you um, and talk a little bit about um, a little bit more about our former governor general, who's had a, a tough week to say the least, uh, David Johnson. I don't know if you saw the Globe and Mail cartoon of the uh, the mock-up of the poodle um, uh, with Mister Johnston's face, you know, bearing a bone with his hind legs. That was a public inquiry. It it's pretty it's rough stuff, and I think someone who uh, probably in his case. Is a loyal uh, 75-year reader of the Globe and Mail <laughs> might just find that type of torture by the media to be especially piquant. But um, uh, the question I have from you, Stuart, is, you know, how does the media look at these figures like David Johnston? I mean, it is amazing that everyone talking about him seems to feel like they have to go for this preoration about, how he's you know canada's greatest public servant uh above and beyond reproach and you know and then we get to talk about the report or who he is or what he is i don't know as a journalist does that kind of annoy you it annoys me a little bit i mean i respect him i respect public people who engage in public service but at the end of the day like if you step off retirement into the political realm writing you know, report like this in a supercharged environment, you're going to get your hands dirty. You're going to get some mud thrown at you. Do you think this is all kind of too precious in a way, our handling of the former GG? Yeah, I think actually I've been guilty of doing that little preamble uh, when I talk
2: about them, And Same. I think that is, you know, the, the, the point that's worth making, I think Angus Reed polling this morning came out saying that, 44% of Canadians thought he was the wrong choice compared to 22 that thought he was the right choice. So I think that does tell you something is that probably most Canadians aren't really following the career of David Johnston. I think they're probably getting a sense from the media of whether he's right or wrong and I actually don't know. I think probably it is his connections to Trudeau that are more damning in the eyes of the media than the fact that he's a former GG. I actually think that probably that works most of the time when you bring in a justice or, you know, someone like David Johnston, it gives it that sort of, um, you know, sheen that the media needs to give it some authority. Um, I personally don't like it. I I think it's a bad idea for Canada and I think it's just a bad idea for David Johnston. I think he probably was doing this in his own mind for the right reasons, which is to serve his country. I think that if you gave him a lie detector test, he would pass. Um, But I think there's an element of vanity there. And I think there's an element of, you know, just this sense that, you know, only I can do this. It really shouldn't have gone to him. And I think now something has turned. I think it's probably, you know, if you read Howard Anglin's piece, it's hard to disagree that he was the wrong person to do this. And I think maybe something may be changing in the media on this controversy
1: alone. I was, I was similarly prepared to give him the benefit of the doubt. You know, listeners will know that I worked in the Harper government, um, and, uh, Mr. Johnston as GG uh, was held in high esteem, especially relative to some of his predecessors. He seemed to kind of imbue the right mix of temperament and symbolism and so on in that role. And so even as, even as conservatives came out, uh, um, in opposition to his appointment to carry out this role, I was prepared to, um, to, to as I say, give him the benefit of the doubt. Um, I've changed my mind in recent days for a couple of reasons. First, we've we've talked about um the the report itself and his um his instinct to weigh into politics and media criticism and all of these things, which um which one can't help but read uh, as um. Carrying some water for the government. It's also just worth observing, guys, that um, there's something unbecoming uh, of uh, to release this report in the middle of a parliamentary break week um, when uh, the opposition couldn't hold the government to account using the one platform that that it's supposed to, which is, of course, question period. Uh, again, another example of of seemingly kind of. Um, tilting in 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 the direction of of the government um but let me put it to you roger um you reminded me this week that this isn't the first time uh in recent years that johnston has been tapped uh to carry out uh responsibilities on behalf of the prime minister or the canadian people or whatever in which the set of choices he's made um seems to have have, of tilted in favor of of the government uh why don't yeah, you no. Why don't you weigh in uh, on on his role in the um in the election debate uh in election yeah. debates, which self evidently led to um a, a, an outcome that I, I don't I don't know how anyone could could disagree um uh was was poor in terms of of
0: of the interests of Canadians. Oh, I love these softball pitches. Thank you, Sean. Um, because it did look it's something which has been utterly ignored since his appointment, especially in the last week. Like. He was appointed to chair the Prime Minister's, and I just remember this, the Prime Minister's Election Debate Commission, which was uh, you know, strongly opposed and uh, by the opposition parties. This was uh, part of a reaction to uh, the fact that the consortium of media organizations that were organizing the debates was all breaking down. So the Prime Minister comes forward, creates this commission to organize debates, David Johnson, for whatever circ- set of circumstances, agrees to become the chair. Another good friend of the uh, Prime Minister, Craig Kielberger, remember that name? <laughs> uh, we we Charities, uh, you know, is, is on that board. Uh, again, you know, two, two degrees of separation, three maybe at the most. And what happens? We have not one, but two disastrous election debates that cost the Canadian taxpayer millions of dollars and are universally panned as being the worst televised political debates in canadian history don't take my word for that read andrew coin read paul wells everyone panned these debates who was the who was arguably responsible for them david johnston uh why did he do this uh why did he put himself in this role um to me, that provides this this clue in a sense, and it's, you know, I, I, I say this with no relish, but all of us, and I will too, and we all will, we reach, our, we reach a sell-by date. We reach a date, all of us in our careers, where it's time to move on. The synapse is slow, the, memories, uh, the memory becomes less reliable, your judgment changes. And I think smart people in public life, know when that off-ramp comes and it usually comes in in your 70s uh into your 80s and people exit proverbial stage left and i think this is an example of someone who you know probably for good instincts but the wrong reason just craves relevancy craves being part of the public conversation of being seen as that indispensable man and I would just say that the whole Election Debates Commission and the fiasco of those election debates, the extent to which they took no responsibility for the failure of the first set of debates, they went and rinsed and repeated the whole exercise again to the tune of millions of dollars of public subsidies and failed again. No one took responsibility. David Johnston certainly took no responsibility. That was, to me, a precursor of why this report was never gonna go to where it should have actually gone in the public interest. And beneath all of this, when you scratch the surface, unfortunately, is an individual who should have quietly, like Cincinnatus, you know, buried his sword and gone to his farm and plowed his fields. And instead, he can't put down the sword. He is constantly looking for these opportunities to re-enter the public square to have prominence, to have relevance, to, you know, we know so many people like this. Uh, they're across this whole cadre from Beverly McLaughlin to, seems like Frank Iacobucci pops up everywhere in every single government s- scandal or crisis. Um, our whole public realm is littered with these uh soon-to-be or already octogenarians who just won't acknowledge that their time has come.
1: Yeah, let me... Great insights there, Roger. Thanks for reminding us and listeners about um, the election debates, which I think most of us have have tried to
0: forget. (laughs) It's traumatic.
1: But it reminds me of uh, Jack Granitstein, who who writes for us on occasion (laughs) at the Hub's uh, famous history of what he called the Ottawa Man. Um, uh, And you said that It may be motivated by a need for relevance and prominence, and no doubt that's part of it. But I I think there is a kind of genuine sense, as Stuart said, that they are uniquely positioned in place to do this on behalf of the Canadian public. It's reflected in Johnson's report, right? He says, I've looked at the intelligence, and I can tell you the the truth, as you put it. And then, (laughs) this is almost too good, he says we need to have public hearings uh, moving forward, and guess who's best placed to uh, lead those hearings? It's me. Um, and, and and I I just can't help but think that this group of people thinks you know through whatever their training or maybe divine right or divine intervention, who knows that they are because of temperament and intellect and you know integrity and so on somehow um the only people in the country uh to guide us through these types of issues and i'll turn it over to stewart in a second um but um let me just say rudyard and stewart that when stewart talks about his experience coming to canada uh as an immigrant and um and the kind of egalitarian experience that he's had where through one generation um you know he's 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 married someone else from an immigrant family and they're giving their kids uh, a a life that I think Stuart's father, uh, you know, would have only hoped when he brought his family here in Scotland, he's reflecting the the, the best of Canada. Um, um, but what's striking about all the people you mentioned, you know, not only are they, is it a small and cozy group um, that they, they're all white. <laughs> Most of them are men. Um, and they just, they just don't, they, 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 uh, they, they, at some level, nod to you know the pluralism and diversity and all the rest, um, but of course they are not reflecting um, um, the Canada as as it is um, and it's becoming. And uh, it just seems um, there's some kind of cognitive dissonance going on here um, um, that you know that I, I can't help but um, but but acknowledge in our conversation.
2: Yeah, I'll just add something that is a little tangential, but I think is important here. But if you scan through the report, there's a few references to Pierre Polyev directly. And then what I think is indirectly, where he talks about overheated rhetoric and stuff like that, you know, partisan rhetoric.
0: Um, The disdain to heaven forbid, (laughs) let's clutch our pearls. Partisanship rears its ugly head.
2: (laughs) Give me a break. Well, it is really funny because you can feel the disdain coming through the report for Polyev. And this is something he seems to conjure up in this type of person. And I am so curious how the next election is going to go because there is sort of a real hatred for Polyev among these people, among the kind of top thinking Canadian men. Um, And I... I've kind of sensed that even when Polyev, I thought, was pulling punches in the scandal because they, I think, were being pretty tame. I think they were spooked by some of the intelligence and they were worried about, you know, something being wrong or looking silly. Um, but the response by a lot of people in the media was that pure Polyev was going overboard here. And I that's just a different perspective by people who I think of bring a pre-existing dislike of Polyev mainly for tone reasons and because he's not really part of this group. Um, so it's just something to watch. You, you wouldn't, it wouldn't jump out at you from the report, but you can feel it every time he mentions Polyev in there.
0: Yeah. Well, Sean, I we'll want just you to know, wrap up on this bigger question cause we've touched on it, which is you've got all these people, um, these formers, former, this former Supreme court, former clerk of the Privy council, former governor general um while we're naming names i mean again it just strikes me as bizarre that our former chief justice beverly mclaughlin is still sitting on the high court in hong kong despite you know national security laws being in place in hong kong which have just utterly eviscerated and destroyed uh democracy on that island and civil rights yet she continues to sit there um but you put all these people together, these formers, Sean, and they they seem to play this kind of critical role. Howard reminds us England today in his piece in the hub, you know, SNC, all these formers are kind of swirling around. Um, now, again, election interference. Let's bring in, in some formers. I guess we can't bring in Beverly McLaughlin because that wouldn't look so great, <laughs> but uh, hey, there's a former GG. He seems willing to do it. To me, Sean, it seems like a, it's just a lot of bathwater getting drunk here. Uh, it seems like an auto-referential system of, you know, look at the United States, and you can criticize the Durham report that was commissioned under the Trump administration, but it has revealed some pretty shocking things about the FBI in relation to Russiagate. That was a special prosecutor of the Department of Justice, a career bureaucrat who had led other important investigations in his career. He wasn't a former this. He wasn't a former that. You know, he was a prosecutor empowered within the U.S. you know justice system to pursue a special investigation. We don't do that, Sean, in this country. It, that to me, Sean, is too much of a threat to executive power, to exec, to the executive privilege. I, I have to get around to writing this piece, but I really feel like our country is, has a court party, uh, a party of sur- that, of courtiers that surround the king and protect the king, in this case, the prime minister and the executive power. And we're just far too differential to this, Sean. It's it's sloppy, it's lazy, and it leads to, I think, in the case of David Johnson's report, really suboptimal outcomes that would just simply not be tolerated in the United Kingdom or the United States.
1: Yeah. Um, In Washington, you guys will be familiar with the notion of the so-called Vulcans, um, a group of people who were really committed to the idea um, uh, 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 of the the role of the executive and protecting the case for a robust— activist executive vis-a-vis um the congress and the judiciary um and at times i've admittedly observed that we don't seemingly have something like that to the extent that we've seen the federal government at at some level shed itself of its section 91 responsibilities you know that is to say um you know the federal government seems more interested in provincial health care than it does national security and so for that reason i've i've been sort of dismissive of the idea that we have uh our own set of Vulcans in Canada but maybe I've been thinking about it wrongly maybe the Canadian Vulcans aren't really focused on um advancing and protecting federal prerogative with respect to federal constitutional responsibilities maybe it's really just about protecting the interests of the executive and those in the executive as an end in itself um Uh, And in that sense,
0: absolutely, Sean, you know, these grubby parliamentarians getting their filthy little hands into our pristine white intelligence dossiers can't do that. We can't have what you have in the UK legislature or Congress, which is parliamentarians and legislators regularly having access as their own institutions separate to the executive to top secret intelligence. No, we have to create a special committee appointed by the prime minister to do this it's so paternalistic
1: well and um as you observed to me earlier this week um even the even the idea that that johnston uh rejects um the workability of a public inquiry has been challenged by those who've led similar public inquiries with respect to the marar uh inquiry or the um or the air india one um and so um it, it it leads one in the direct leads one to the conclusion, and I, I don't I don't come to this conclusion lightly. Um, that that this special rapporteur process um, is as much about sort of protecting interests of the government as it is to ultimately
0: getting to the bottom of what yeah. went on here. Yeah, my final thought is it just it also epitomizes a strategy of rulership, Sean, which is that. It's all about safe hands, trusted, trusted interlocutors, the former's, the former clerks, the former justices, chief justices, if you can get one, uh, governor generals. They're like this this bizarre uh, parallel bureaucracy and uh, center of influence that is strategically called on to massage and manipulate and push towards these outcomes that that are predetermined by the executive and that the executive is going to is going to get because it's just so powerful in the Canadian system. And there really aren't the same checks that we see in legislatures like the UK with strong caucuses or the United States with its division of powers. I think that's where this all goes back to, guys. It goes back to Peace, order, and good government—just this inherent deference in the Canadian system to authority. But it's kind of interesting this week, uh, and I'll give you the last word, Stuart, to just see that be challenged. I don't know. I'm kind of excited by the end of this week. I feel like, you know, there's there's a a rebellious, there's a whiff of like gunpowder in the air as we kind of look up at at Versailles, or <laughs> you pick your, you pick your royal your royal castle or estate, state, um, the peasants are angry and um, I'm not so sure they're going to accept this.
2: Yeah. That that Angus Reid poll that I mentioned earlier shows that nearly 60% of Canadians think the government has been evasive on this. And I think that's a real problem for them because there's not a lot to do now. They've, they've done the David Johnston gambit and that's it. And We don't know if there's more leaks to come or if there's more wrinkles in this story, but I think the government's reaction, our response to it in Canada is baked in. So um, if there was anything I'd be trying to avoid right now, if I was a liberal, if I was Justin Trudeau, it's that feeling of you know, sneaky, evasive political scheming, because I think once people start to feel that way about you, it's hard to get out of it because whatever you do looks like a political scheme. So um, this is gonna be trouble. And I, I think you are correct about the feeling of the media on this. And. that that just means it's going to be a tough, um, the liberals will get away from it in the summer, but when they come back, it's going to be really tough for them.
0: Awesome, guys. Great conversation. As always, thank you, listeners, for joining the roundtable for this Friday, the 26th of May. Uh, Check out Howard England's piece. Sean had some great writing on this also this week in the Hub. Um, We've got more terrific content uh, landing over the weekend and into Monday on um, this whole I don't know what you call it. It's something, and we'll continue uh, to follow it closely for Hub readers and listeners. Have a great weekend. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Friday Roundtable. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub. I've been in conversation with Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, and Stuart Thompson, the Hub's Editor-in-Chief. This program was produced and edited by Amal Atar Guzman. You can access audio versions on our website at www.thehub.ca. And finally, you can subscribe to The Hub podcast feed on virtually any audio program. We've got all kinds of terrific conversations featuring some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers discussing the big issues and ideas transforming our world. Available right now for your listening pleasure. The Hubs podcasts are generously supported by the Ira and Maxine Granovsky-Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.